welcome to Bougie Adjacent. I'm Amanda Lauren. I'm going to keep this intro real quick because I am in the least bougie situation ever. The apartment above me is being renovated and they are redoing the floors and they've managed to stop for an entire five minutes. So if it sounds like I'm having a nervous breakdown, you got it. I'm having one. Um, anyway, uh, if you're new here, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Please follow me on Instagram at It's Amanda Lauren. This is also in the show notes on Twitter at Amanda Lauren. And please subscribe, rate, and review. It's good karma. Five stars only. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to keep this real quick. Like I said, our guest today is Scout Sobel. I interviewed her yesterday. She is an amazing entrepreneur, the founder of Scout's agency, um, the co-host of the OK Sis podcast, a friend, and I just really love Scout. I love what she's about. I love her openness. I love her honesty. I love her rawness. And I especially love her new book, The Emotional Entrepreneur. Um, it is part memoir. She suffers from bipolar disorder. I don't want to say suffers. You know what? Suffer is definitely the wrong way to describe it because I think she slays bipolar disorder. She really does. And I think for anyone struggling right now, which is, I don't know, last time I checked, literally all of us. You will get so much out of this interview, out of her book. If you want to buy it, the link is in the show notes. Anyway, I am going to shut up now and um, here we go. On to Scout Sobel. Again, thank you Scout so much for coming on. I was so grateful to have her. Thank you so much for being here, Scout. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, you are, I'm holding your book right now, which they say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I'm totally judging your book by its cover. Um, the emotional entrepreneur. It really is. Wait, can we just talk with, did you have a graphic designer do the cover? I know this is great for a podcast. Okay. So this is so embarrassing and I feel so bad that I did this, but I had this guy who is going to be the graphic designer. I was working with a company to help me kind of flesh out the content, et cetera, and we were talking about the front cover, and I was like, you know what? I want a 20-year-old Gen Z graphic designer <laughs> to really get it, have it be beautiful on Instagram, etc. Um, but I let this guy give it a stab, and everything I do, I feel like I work with women, so I just felt like it was out of out of my comfort zone, especially when it came to the design of my book. And I gave him all of these inspirations, and this was the first thing he came back to me with. I love and it. it was a slam dunk. It was exactly what I wanted. It's sophisticated. It's timeless. It's like a little vintage looking. It's beautiful. It's so cool. And you sent it to me in a gorgeous package with like Palo Sand. And I literally, I'm like, this is how everyone should just send me. I felt like it was a treat just unboxing this book. Oh, thank you. That was really important to me because I don't think, you know, I think we're in an age where presentation, branding, down to what box are you sending your stuff to people in, what do your note cards look like that you're writing handwritten notes on, and so with The Emotional Entrepreneur, I felt like I kind of had a whole brand moment where I got everything customized. It's, it's amazing. So for people that don't know about your book, can you talk a little bit about it? Yes. Yeah, so The Emotional Entrepreneur essentially is the emotional guidebook to entrepreneurship. It infuses my experience living with bipolar disorder with my experience being an entrepreneur since I found when I started Scouts Agency that I had to get my emotional mental health level even to a bigger game than it already was after living with bipolar disorder for so many years. So 
I really recognized that the women around me weren't getting into the game not because of resources or education or experience or finances, but because of imposter syndrome, fear, anxiety, etc. And so I really set out to write this book. It has 25 lessons that um, each lesson is an emotional lesson that will help you run your own business. So one thing that I thought was really interesting about this book is that it is part memoir, but it's also actionable tips. And I feel like, okay, I'm going to say something a little controversial here. Go for it. It's the, and I feel like this is a weird example, but I wish, but everyone listening, just like, forgive me for saying this. Okay. There are the Glennon Doyles and there's the Rachel Hollises. And Rachel Hollis has now become a horrible example. That being said, the difference between the two of them is that Glennon Doyle just talks, and I like them both actually, but Mm -hmm. Glennon Doyle talks about feelings all day long and Rachel Hollis just gives like actionable tips, but like you can't really figure out what's behind this. And I think that in the world of self-improvement and personal development, you, in my, in my head, people fall under one of two categories. You cannot be in both, except for Scout, you are in both. So why did you decide to do both? Oh my God. That is the, like Rachel Hollis scandal aside, that is the biggest compliment I have ever received, Amanda, because that is and has been my exact intent because I am a writer first. So the first thing I knew how to do, the thing that I feel as if is my greatest gift that just pours out of me is creative writing. But when I was younger, I could never write about something that wasn't real. So I could only write nonfiction, but I infused my writing prose style, et cetera, with creative writing sensibilities. And so when I wrote this book, I wanted it to have the air of a Glennon Doyle, like beautiful writing, talking about experiences, like bringing you into a story, et cetera. But I, I remember very vividly when I was going through my mental health healing, uh, I think it's something in AA specifically, because my husband's in AA, that support groups aren't just about talking about their feelings, there's action items to it in the AA rooms. So Ooh. I did some 12-step rooms, uh, support groups that weren't AA, like Depression Anonymous, et cetera. And then I would go to NAMI support groups, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and they would just sit and talk about their feelings. And I left, and I was like, but what's the thing we're going to go home and work on? And what's the takeaway? And what's the prayer, you know? And so for me, healing is so important, and expressing your life in a poetic way is so, so, so important but the action item is what moves you past just visually understanding and representing your life in a beautiful way and actually making changes. So it was very conscious of me to do both. I feel as if my writing career, I wanted to kind of blast through the genres of like, does that make sense? Blast through like the memoir self-help kind of world and combine them two. So it's like you're a journalist or something, you're spot on. It's, it's totally, and that's the other thing that I like about it too that I have to say is that you keep the work, because like I've read, listen, I've read a lot of self-help, I've read a lot, and like I like that it's a very, that it's like a very good amount of work, it like gets it done, but it's not too long, and I think Mm -hmm. that that's important too, that all the things that you ask of the people reading your book seem very doable, like okay, I can answer these five questions, or 
there's just a few lines I can write like it it really gives you like it, it doesn't overwhelm you with things to do was that yes. was that intentional as well I don't know. I don't know so much. To be honest, now that I'm thinking back, the worksheets were things that were added a little bit later, like the idea that we would have these questions because I felt, I think I wrote a few chapters and it felt incomplete to not really help guide someone through the process that I was talking about. But I understand in the world of healing and self-development that it is very daunting because there is so much that you're supposed to do so fast, et cetera. You can get totally overwhelmed and not even start, to be honest. So I think that I'm all about really subtle shifts. I think I'm about really, really subtle shifts. Like if you were to put it in a fitness metaphor, like instead of going to the hour CrossFit thing, you do 10 minutes of gentle Pilates every day, right? So mm-hmm. for me in my own life, it's the subtle things. It's the things you add into your life versus take away that make the biggest impact. So I think that just naturally came about from my philosophy of healing. It's, it's very, it's very, I don't know, there's just something about it that seems so much smarter than a lot of the other things that I've read. Um, and I like the way that you talk about adding in instead of taking away, because it is like, it doesn't seem hard, especially if you are an entrepreneur or you're someone who is, you know, having, I don't want to say mental health issues. It's, you know what? I mean, I'm just going to be completely honest. It is, we are living in a world with a pandemic and it's impossible to not feel as if we all are suffering, you know, Mm -hmm. emotionally in one. I don't know any person right now that doesn't feel like they are going through some sort of difficult time in one way or another. A hundred percent. And when I wrote The Emotional Entrepreneur, I made a very cognizant decision as I do in all of my content to not necessarily speak to the clinical mentally ill. So Mm -hmm. the people I talk to are struggling with their mental health day to day. They don't necessarily, I mean, they might, but I'm not talking to people who have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or OCD necessarily. I'm just talking about a general collective mental health upkeep that we all have to go with and we all have to tap into. And so I've always made that a very particular choice that the mental health stuff I talk about is the stuff that we can all learn from. It's, like I said, especially right now, it it's so relevant because I think that, at least for me, the worst feeling for me is having the rug pulled out from underneath me. And I think that for most people, no one likes the rug pulled out. I mean, listen, I think that there are people that thrive this way, but I think most of us, mm-hmm. I think people in general long for stability. And it's very hard, and especially entrepreneurship, which is the opposite of stability. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the literal opposite. And mm-hmm. so to get through entrepreneurship, you need to learn how to feel safe and foundational within yourself. Practices that bring you back to that foundational self. I always say like stabilizing my root chakra, et cetera, taking baths, grounding, journaling, meditating, et cetera. Because when you open from nine to five, it's it's, you know anything can happen to you throughout a day with entrepreneurship. So for me, taking care of your mental health is the only way to survive that rug being pulled out of you feeling to expect that it's going to happen. And so that when it does happen, you're strong, prepared and ready to take it on. That 
That's totally true. Let me ask, why did you decide to self-publish? Because I think a lot of people are doing this today, and I think it's really smart, and it's a really interesting way to go about things. So I haven't actually ever come out and said that I self-published my book, and let me tell you why. Let me tell you why, and I'll I'll talk to you about it. I was going the traditional publishing route. Um, I wrote a 60-page proposal last year. I hired someone who works in the industry to reach out to her literary agent connections and put it in front of their faces. And it takes, she likes to send out five at a time, and then it takes anywhere from two to three months to hear back from the literary agent after they've read your whole proposal. Mm-hmm. And so three months went by. I had heard back, I think, I don't even know if we heard back from the fifth, but on month three, one of the girls said that I didn't have the audience to sell books. Such bullshit. And Amanda, I got so pissed off that she said that to me. And I was starting to really understand the way the publishing industry works because I have clients who are first-time authors that come to me for a podcast tour to with my agency, Scouts Agency, to get them as a guest on podcasts to promote their book. Every single time I talk to them, they are shocked at the little support that publishing houses do to market your book. When you are an author, especially a first-time author, you have to put in your own money to market your book. As a first-time author, many of them only get a $10,000 raise. Others, if they already have a built-in community, can get bigger ones, but really kind of like the entry... the entry fee is $10,000 and these women are putting in 50 plus thousand to launch their books. And so I sat there and I was like, okay, so if I go the traditional publishing route, clearly this shit's taking forever. I could not have a literary agent for a year. Then they have to shop it to a publishing agency, which could take another year. Then I get the publishing agency, I get $10,000 and then the book's launched in three years. And what does the publishing industry give me? Okay, it gives me credibility, fine, and it gives me the opportunity to walk into a Barnes & Noble and physically see my book on the shelves. And I only make about a dollar a book. And so I started calculating all of this in my head and I said, do I want to wait three years to have this book potentially published, make only a dollar a book when I could launch this in six months? No one will even know I self-published it because with self-publishing, it can be available on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, everywhere online. It's COVID. No one's walking into a Barnes & Noble. And I had a magazine that was already on the shelves of Barnes & Noble, so I've had that experience. And I make $5 a book. Yeah. It was a no-brainer for me at that point. And the only reason I wanted to go with the traditional publishing house was for credibility. And I was like am I really willing to put my career on pause, put this message on pause for credibility? I fucking dropped out of college. I don't need this. You know, I don't need credibility. I've never needed it. And so once that literary agent told me that I didn't have the audience or the community to sell a book, I said, watch me. But I didn't tell anybody really, really, that I self-published because I wanted to see if I could create the success I had in my mind with the public, with the people who bought it, et cetera, and have it feel the same as a regular book? And the answer is yes. The whole thing felt like it was a regular book being published by, does that make sense? By a publishing house. 
It it does. And I think that it's also like I'll tell you. Well, first of all, like I said, it's a beautifully designed book. It's beautifully formatted. It feels good to read. It mm. feels good to touch and feel this book. Um and I'll tell you this, it's really funny because like I know a ton of people who have published books and listen, you're a publicist, so this might come out wrong. So I'm not insulting your industry. I'm friends with a ton of publicists. But these publicists that work for the publishing houses do absolutely nothing. No, I'm sorry. No, Amanda, let's say it right now. They do nothing. They don't nothing. understand how to market a book. And so, so many women I saw were spending so much of their own money to market a book. So I've actually been taking extensive notes in the last six months of how I launched The Emotional Entrepreneur. And now we're going to help other women through that same thing because it, this is the question, Amanda, like what do the publishing houses do? I, I can't figure it out. Like I'll tell you, the most successful author, well, I know Anna David who now runs a self-publishing hybrid company and I know Amy Dresner. And Amy Dresner had this book called My Fair Junkie that came out mm -hmm. and she was on my old podcast and I had to, and I'm literally like friends with her, friends with her. And I had to like contact her through the publicist who arranged this whole thing. And she's been on a million podcast and now she's gotten like her second royalty check the book came out like three or four years ago but the point is she's been on a bajillion podcast she's been interviewed she's done all the work that publicist could barely answer my emails or give me the password to download it for free to prepare for the interview yeah. I mean total waste of time yeah, it's definitely something at Scouts Agency. Like just yesterday, we launched our new service, the Author Tour, which is a nine-month immersive like book launch thing that brings in influencer marketing, branding, uh, personal brand upfresh, podcasts, event planning, press, etc. Because I feel as if the support that goes around a book launch is not just, in my opinion, to have a successful book launch and sell books. It should also move your career and your personal brand forward at the same time. It's, yeah, I mean, listen, I, like I said, I think that the thing with all this is you have to do the work no matter what publishing route you go mm -hmm. there when you are done writing the book. And listen, I have not written a book one day, but like you have to do, you have to do the work. Yeah. Um, it's like being an artist who paints, you have to sell the paintings. It's, it's exhaust. I mean, it's, listen, and one thing that you talk about in the book, which is that you know, you talk about how you stop taking your bipolar. You talk about that in the book. Well, let me ask you, what is it like to come out with that information? Do you think it scares? I'm I'm a little bit more than halfway through the book, to be completely honest with you, because it's so good. I don't want to skim it. Like, I want to treasure my – it's a true – I'm really not just saying this. It's a real experience reading this book. Thank you. Um, and I – so let me ask you, what do you think that, that it scares people or it makes people cautious about working with you? Or do you think your work speaks for itself? Or how, how do you manage that? So in the beginning of starting Scouts Agency, I like the very beginning, months one to three, I think I had mentioned it casually on OKSIS, my podcast, that I was bipolar, but I had not spoken about it super openly on my Instagram or anything like that. Like, I don't think my clients would ever figure that out about me. And I remember I went on Chatty Broad's podcast where I told the whole story. And once that happened, I posted about it on my Instagram. My clients followed me. I said, if I choose to talk about this openly, um, there's no way that my clients aren't going to know. And so I have to decide if I'm okay with that, et cetera. 
And the limiting belief, which I talk about in the book, is that no one's going to want to work with me if they find out that I was bipolar, college dropout, admitted to the hospital, couldn't hold a job, non-functioning, et cetera, et cetera. And to be honest, I have never had one person not sign with me because of that or have a negative reaction because of that. I, depending on sales calls, which I think is a reason or an aspect of Scouts Agency that is run than different businesses because I represent women that are usually around my age that I really, really believe in, et cetera. So if we're having a really great conversation on our discovery call about them working with me and it comes up, I have no problem saying it in a, in a sales call at this point. Every time I do, I am met with, thank you so much for sharing that. It's incredible what you do because of this and I can trust you. So sometimes we think the parts of ourselves that are something to be shameful, shamed or put away in a closet or not talked about in a professional setting, if you come out and be who you are in an authentic, loving way, if you have the work ethic, the drive, the integrity, you're a good person, you're talented, you do your job well, those things are actually assets that make you more of a human that your clients will really appreciate. You know, granted, my clients are not some CEO of a Fortune 500 company, right? Like that's a different mm -hmm. de demographic. Um, and different kind of vibe of a person. So I think that you can be who you are and the people you work with in business will be attracted to that and the people that aren't, aren't the people you want to work with anyways. That's, that's a great answer. I mean, I have to say that like, I would, I think that people are more likely to want to work with people that have overcome real shit. 100%, yeah, for sure. 100%. I found that every time I said it, it humanized me and they, and all of a sudden they respected me more because when I talk to them about Scouts Agency, I talk about Scouts Agency like it's my lifeline, you know? I can't mm -hmm. do anything else in this world. My bipolar disorder has pigeonholed me into a box of entrepreneurship and I am so grateful to be here. And so there's not one day that I do take this whole situation for granted. I know in my heart that this is where I'm supposed to be, even if it's uncomfortable, even if days are really stressful and anxiety and I'm crying like I did the other day and had to take a lap around the neighborhood. So when a client comes to me and if they even have a question of, is your bipolar disorder going to get in the way? I say the only way to manage my bipolar disorder is to stay in business. So they're so intricately combined for me that one really supports the other. That, that makes a lot of sense. Another thing you talk about, I believe you talk about it in the book. It's because I know you, so I'm like, did you tell me this or was it in the book? But I know you're <laughs> open about it. Um, is not, is being unmedicated. Yes. And what has that, like, what has the, and that you've been unmedicated for like a year. Mm -hmm. What has that been like for you and how did that impact you writing the book? So my uh, journey with medication was a rocky one. Um, it actually wasn't until like two and a half years ago that I found the medication that actually worked for me. So I was on a medley constantly on and off. I was someone who was very sensitive to side effects. So I experienced a lot of negative side effects that actually made me worse with psychiatric medication. And my general stance on psychiatric medication is that it is nothing to be ashamed of. And if you need the medication to get through a certain pattern in your mind, a certain phase of your life, et cetera, then there is zero stigma or shame. I took all of them, right? And mm -hmm. I like to take the emphasis off medication solving all your problems. Medication can help 
I always say 20%, and it could take three months for the medication to kick in. So instead of waiting for medication to really, really help you immediately, understanding that the 80% is what you put into your mental health and your spiritual, emotional well-being. So when it comes to medication, I always say be your biggest advocate in the doctor's office. Ask what side effects are, what the withdrawal symptoms are, etc. So you really, really know what you're putting in your body. And don't wait around for medication to solve it because it'll only give you a little boost for your tools and the things that you've internally strengthened in your own mind to really shine. That being said, I went off medication a year ago because I'm interested in starting a family in my near future and that was the main decision. That medication was working beautifully for me, Mm -hmm. uh, but I made the decision to go off to kind of detox my body before I decided to have a family. And um, there's definitely moments that I've had in the year where I'm like, oh man, being on meds right now would be awesome, right? Uh I definitely felt the difference, but I also went off it at a time when I had a one-on-one coach. I had immense support, professional support. I also had... I had never felt more stable in my life before I went off and not just because the medication was working, but because I had finally found the tools that really kept my ship afloat. So I had a lot of confidence in myself. I think the main thing was that I was no longer afraid of my emotions and I felt as if I was safe within their experience. And so going off of it was a conscious decision and I definitely proved myself right that I can manage my life without it at this point in my life. But there definitely are moments where uh, where I feel it. Let me ask you, what are some of the tools that you use to manage things mm-hmm. when you aren't on medication? So routine and structure and discipline is very important for me. So every single morning, I don't look at my phone for an hour to two. And one hour to two hours in the morning, the first thing I do is I journal for 20 to 30 minutes. Just so conscious journaling, no prompt, etc. I just write whatever comes to mind with no judgment. Uh, I do daily meditation. I try to get in some daily movement, even if it's 10-minute Pilates at home, etc. Really gentle, like 10 to 30 minutes yoga Pilates, walk around my block, etc. Um, I am very mindful about the content that I consume. So I'll put on a podcast in the morning before I like check my phone, you know? Mm-hmm. And I always make sure that it's aligned with setting my day up right. Is it going to spiritually center me? Is it going to inspire me in business, etc.? Um, I do, I take a lot of time away from my phone. I find that actually to be the most healing thing when you're on a healing journey to not be consistently plugged into stimulation so that you can see what it feels like just to be here and just to be with your body and just to be with your thoughts. I get outside as much as I can, as much as I can. I eat healthy. I look, I love wine, but I am responsible about the quantity that I and the frequency that I'm drinking because that can definitely help your anxiety. I have a non-negotiable eight and a half hours of sleep every single night. Um, oh, sounds lovely. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I don't, I don't fuck around with my sleep. Like that is a for sure non-negotiable. So, and it's also monitoring the way I talk to myself, right? So when I hear something that's negative in my mind, I really pause and I'm like, where did that come from? And how can I replace it with a thought that feels more true and loving in myself? So It's constant mind monitoring. It's constantly being like, I know this sounds silly, but I'm so sensitive, especially as someone with a mental illness. So it's not having social plans, more than two social plans a week. It's giving giving myself space to nourish and rest myself 
versus like time off scrolling on Instagram, time off numbing out on Netflix, going to that lunch that you really don't want to go to, etc. So it's being really mindful with my time and spending a lot of alone time, just me without external stimulation. That's, those are helpful. Let me ask, what podcast do you like to listen to? Oh, so many. So in the morning, in the morning, I usually do like a business one because I'm about to get to work. So I want to feel inspired. So I'll listen to Skinny Confidential, Don't Keep Your Day Job, The Jasmine Star Show. Um, yeah. And then on a spiritual side, Natalia Benson's podcast, Sahara Rose, Almost 30. Uh, I love Mariana Hewitt's podcast. It's so good because I love how it's just like 30 to 40 minute bite size entrepreneurial questions. Oh, Ed Milet, uh, people like that. How do you monitor your mind? Because I find now it's really funny because I've been going through something sort of parallel of not taking ADD medicine for it's been almost a year. Mm -hmm. And I had this thing done called TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is, it's not like shock treatment, but basically a magnet goes, I don't know if you know about it at all. Yeah, I've heard of it. A magnet like goes to your brain and sort sort of resets things. And I had it done like two years ago. I still didn't get off medication. Then when I got pregnant um, before... Um, I had my miscarriage. I have to put that in because in case yeah. there's anyone new listening who hasn't heard me talk about it 400 times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get don't it. laugh about these things. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like it's one of those things where it's just been very interesting for me because I had to get off of medication like immediately and I was fine. And – but like you're right that there's – and I would tell you TMS – Cured my ADD, I will say like 70% probably, mm-hmm. although I don't have much to compare it to. But I feel like I'm like seven, you know, it's yeah. honestly, it's less anxiety provoking than being on medication. So it's sort of six of one, half a dozen of another. But the mind monitoring for me is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us struggle, no matter if you have ADD or bipolar or you're just living in this world right now. I don't know one person that doesn't struggle with negative self-talk. Yes. Um, You know, I'll be really honest, and this is not to make me sound holier than thou, etc. No, do it. Do it. You're brilliant. It's just just really to provide an example that it's possible. You know, I'm hard on myself, but I don't talk negatively to myself. I… There are times when I do, and I know that something's wrong when it happens. So when there's negative self-talk happening in my mind, I stop, and I'm like, oh, we're, we're in murky waters today. And it's pretty rare. So for me, the negative self-talk is more about, or the self-talk monitoring is making sure that I'm telling myself that what I want to do in this lifetime is possible. So it's catching little thoughts like, well, I can't charge that. Okay, that's not true. That's a limiting belief. Or it's making sure I talk to my body in a loving way. I can feel not comfortable in my body, but I'm I'm making sure that I talk to her in a really beautiful way. So for me, every time I catch a thought now that doesn't feel good, I feel it in my whole being and I know something's off balance with me. And so I work really hard to honor the feeling, the thought, whatever it is, but then to come back to my truth. 
I think when it comes to negative self-talk, we have to identify what's true and what's not true, right? Mm-hmm. You saying, I'm a loser, I have nothing to say, who am I to do this, I'm not beautiful, I'm not t- smart, I'm not talented enough, those are, those are lies. Those are flat-out lies. And so if you can really get clear on what's a lie and what's truth, every time a negative self-talk moment happens, you can say, oh, whoa, I'm fucking lying to myself right now. And that inherently makes you try to find the truth, which is that you're capable, you're competent, you're beautiful, you're talented, you have a point of view, you are here for a certain reason, and you deserve to be loved and supported. So I think my self-talk is really great. Like, I love myself, dude. Like, I love myself so much. And when it gets murky, it's because I'm either physically tired, stressed, I ate something wrong and I don't physically feel my best. There's something off in my routine. And then I can be like, oh, yeah, my mind's lying to me because something's off balance here. But once I, can, once I was able to really identify that those things that I was telling myself at one point in my life were lies, I just don't know why I would continue to tell myself them if they're not true. I only like to tell myself things that are true. That's amazing. That takes like a lot of I feel like that's a process though. Oh my god. Years. Years, 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 years. It's one, not just letting the thoughts be on a mindless loop. Like think about the difference between subconsciously scrolling and just consuming content while numbing out versus looking at someone's photo, reading their caption, taking a moment. So we can let our self-talk, whatever we have in that mind, go on all day and not even be conscious about what it's actually saying to us. So it's about getting conscious, stopping when you hear something you don't like or isn't making you feel good, and really being with it for a second and starting to get self-aware about the types of things or the types of narrative that you talk to yourself with. That's, that's amazing. Let me ask, how do you balance, because to me, entrepreneurship is a lot of action, a lot of things going on, a lot of, I have to do A, B, and C today. Mm-hmm. And being really living in your feelings, to me, is the opposite of that. Sometimes not your intuition, but just like, you know, you can be busy and you can have a lot of good stuff going on at work, but you can also think to yourself like, oh my God, I have, how am I going to get to the other side of town? And you have anxiety over things you can't control. You know, I have an appointment all the way in Santa Monica. How am I going to finish this and do it? Or, oh, I have a call with someone for sales and I'm really, I'm really, you know, intimidated or scared Mm -hmm. or, you know, other things going on. How do you manage being in your feelings and like doing all the things you have to do to make money at the same time? How do you achieve that balance? First and foremost, I love producing and executing. So there's a part of me that loves action items. Mm -hmm. Running my own business allows me that flexibility if the emotions are maybe too heightened that I need to take a break or I need to pull back or I need to reschedule something. It also allows me to really schedule my days um, according to my energy levels and my mental health. So I don't take calls that are not with my team before 10 a.m. I like mm-hmm. to end all calls by 3 p.m. I don't take calls Monday or Friday, except for my team meetings, so that I have space to actually work and do things and not be on Zoom all day long. 
But in moments where you don't feel like showing up, I think that, listen, it's, it's a very specific practice that you need to, to find internally, but there's a difference between I have anxiety and I don't want to show up for that meeting and giving into your anxiety and having that not necessarily be the thing you needed most in that moment. And there's a difference between I have so much anxiety for the longevity of my mental health, I need to not take this meeting right now. Those are two separate things. So a lot of the times for me, if I'm not in the mood or I'm sad, anxious, da 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 in sorry, a tough love way, that's life. Like it's life. Life is showing up even when you don't want to. Life is unconditionally being connected to your mission even when you don't feel like doing it. Is there a part of that where you need to make some judgment calls based on your mental health? Absolutely. But 95% of the time, you have to show up if you're not feeling creative, inspired, awake, you know, you're feeling your best, whatever it is. And so it's in those moments. And usually when you do show up, you're happy you did after. It's like going to the gym kind of thing. So for me, I use my mental illness as an excuse to not show up every single time. And now I know that my anxiety and my emotions do not run the bottom line of my success within my business. I honor them. I feel them. I use them to help me make sure I'm in alignment. Mm -hmm. But if I'm having an anxious day, I pull within and I show up. That's awesome. Let me ask, one thing you talked about too was creating boundaries or saying like, nope, not doing calls Monday and Friday. How do you create boundaries with clients or people you work with? Because I think that's something that everyone has, listen, I've been going through it with someone that I work with and I'm just like, nope, Mm -hmm. this is unacceptable. And it's very hard for me. And it like really got me to a point where I was like, I don't know what to do. So how do you do that? Like, what are your best tips? And that is something you talk about in the book, but like, what are your best tips for creating boundaries to live your best life? Boundaries are something that I am just now getting really great at. Um, Very proud of myself that I RSVP'd no to two social events, you know, a baby shower Mm -hmm. and a wedding that I didn't really need to be there for. Um, In business specifically, I think in the beginning, especially when you're an entrepreneur, you want to please your client, your customer, whoever it is, so significantly because the survival of your business depends on it. Mm -hmm. There are ways to put in boundaries from the very beginning. For example, in my contracts, it says that correspondence will only happen via email and not text message. That way, you know, I got a few clients. I love them. It's fine when they text me and we're like friends at this point, but I, we don't communicate with our clients via text. That way, if we're going to bed at 8.30, we don't see a text message from them, etc. Um, clearly communicating in your contract how many phone calls a month you take with clients based on the retainer that they offered, right? And for me, it's also a mind game because I think that, for example, like how do I not work 24-7? You don't look at your email after 5.30. That's the only way. If you're getting back to clients at 7.30, 8.39, they will expect that you are always on call. Things can wait. We live in a culture, and it's absolutely crazy, Amanda, and I'm sure you know because you are in like the content machine with journalism, that people feel like everything's an emergency. 
Nothing's oh an God, emergency. Yes. Nothing's an emergency. So if you take 12 hours to get back to someone, you're good, dude. You're good. But I think it's really clearly defining where you're available to communicate, how many hours you're available for a certain job, et cetera. And putting that into a contract makes it super, super crystal clear from the beginning. I've also known with, you know, running a team, when something isn't done the way I want it to, or if one of my team members messes up, et cetera, I used to like brush it off and say it nicely, you know, like not to offend them. It's just being direct and clear right away. Um, but it is something I work on daily. It's something that I've been forced to work on if I want to be feeling okay within my business. It's no, listen, I, I get it. I had someone email me this week that she emailed me on a Friday late in the afternoon. We had a call scheduled. She didn't show up for it. And she had rescheduled that call. My business partner and I stayed on hold for, we we ended up just sort of having a business meeting for that half an hour that Mm -hmm. we needed anyway. But, you know, we got caught up. But it was one of those things where it was like, we're just waiting for her to get on the conference line. You know, we send her an email. Hey, we're here. And then she was annoyed that we didn't answer her email fast enough. And it's like... I don't know what to – it's Friday afternoon. Like, I didn't answer it on Saturday because I just took a day off for myself because I think everyone's entitled to at least one day off a week. Yeah. And, and I answered it on Sunday. And I felt, like, weird. But it's like, mm. you don't get that power. Like, you're paying me, but not that much. Just because someone pays you does not mean they own you. That's a really good quote, and you should put that on a coffee mug or something like that. <laughs> Well, I had to really realize that. I was like, look, my clients, I'm not their full-time employee. And even if I was their full-time employee, boundaries still get to be had with employees and bosses. You know, I just think this 24-7 world that we're in with responses, et cetera, is really toxic and is the reason for burnout. If we specifically were really intentional with our work hours, like when I'm working from nine to five, I'm working. That's it. Like... My husband tries to talk to me. I'm like, hello, do you see the computer's open? Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. I am working. I'm focused so that when I'm off work, I get to be off work. I get to be resting. I get to be cooking a meal. I get to be listening to music with my husband. And so I think the blending of all hours that we're doing in today's modern world, especially with work from home and how quickly technology and emails, et cetera, I think that's the reason for burnout, not the actual amount of work that we're doing, if that makes sense. No, I listen. I agree with you. Okay, one more question before mm-hmm. act before uh, we go because I want to respect your time. What are a few? If you had to say to someone, what are like three reasons someone should buy this book? Three reasons. One, if you um, let's see if I can make this short. Three reasons. One, you either want to start a business or you are starting your business and you are finding the emotional roadblocks to be very challenging. You need this book. Two, if you are feeling unsafe in your emotions, this book will help you feel safe in your emotions. And three, if you don't know where to start in the personal development mental health game, as you said, Avanda, I feel like this book is very digestible and will give you subtle action items to start your healing journey. I love it. I love it. Where can people find you? You guys we'll link can... this all in the show notes. Yay. You can find me on Instagram at Scout Sobel. That's the best place in my bio. I have links to Scout's agency, both of my podcasts, OKSIS okay, and Scout, 
And uh, you can get the link to my book there as well on Amazon, The Emotional Entrepreneur. Amazing, amazing. Again, thank you so much for being on here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, love. This was the best.